the Square Ball Podcast. Welcome to episode one of the Phil Hay Show, our brand new weekly podcast, the collaboration between the Square Ball and the Athletic. I'm Dan Moylan. Sadly, Phil can't be with us this week. <laughs> Joking, he's here for the first one, the star of the show, the man with his name in lights. Phil, welcome. You've got Steve Morrison instead. No, not really. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be on, on board with you guys, the, the best podcasters in town. And it's been it's been a long time coming, this one, I think. It has. Well, it took me about 10 years to get on one of your other shows um, <laughs> last season. Um, but um, but we're here. We're ready to go. We are. And with me from the square ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. And Moscow White, Daniel Chapman. Hello. This podcast, one of 11 shows being launched by The Athletic this week. So if you want to have a look outside the world beyond Leeds United, give them a try. Amongst those is the Ornstein and Chapman show where Mark Chapman and David Ornstein are going to delve deep into some of football's biggest stories. And this week, they discuss a possible return to the Premier League for England winger Jadon Sancho. And we look forward to them discussing Calvin Phillips' Uh, inclusion in the England squad and return to the Premier League in the not-too-distant future with us. To hear that and many more, go to theathletic.com right now and subscribe with a 40% discount by using the code UKPOD. Well, Phil, we gave our thoughts on Reading last night on our Matchball podcast. You were there, so talk us through it from your point of view. How was that? It was like going back to Luton four days earlier. It was wet. It was a slog. It was it was hard going. It's funny, really. They're very perfunctory this season, Leeds, and and they are looking very good at, at getting the job done. Um, it has to be said, just. But a couple of people said to me after the game last night, those are games that they wouldn't have won last season, and I'm not certain about that because actually they were good at digging it out in Bielsa's first year as well. But they they do seem to have got into their heads that it doesn't need to be three 0 four 0 that it doesn't need to be flowing and it doesn't need to be spectacular, and and that if they can get away from Luton with a, a 90th minute winner, if they can get away from Reading with an 87th minute winner, then everybody's happy and I, I did think last night you could see a kind of jaded touch in the players he, he made one change Bielsa it was Cooper in for um, Berardi but players like Ailing and, and Hernandez and, and Phillips did look as if they'd been at Luton and, and through pretty difficult 90 minutes four days earlier but in the end a, a top win from a game that they that they should be winning um, and top of the league for now West Brom obviously game to game to come but they, they just look to me like they're in the zone they're, they're, they're better off in terms of points than they were last season the, the, the organisation and the understanding of what they're doing seems as good they evidently are not going to be giving us easy days and we're not going to be looking at 3 nilers at, at any stage but I think that they would all be pretty happy with where they're at at the moment Good result last night though in, in what was it it was a fairly turgid game all round It was I I didn't think a goal was coming and I didn't think a goal was coming at Luton either and it is impressive actually how patient the players are and, and the way they're able to stick to the plan Bielsa spoke about that afterwards he was asked you know, how, how impressed are you with the fact that when it gets to the 87th minute to the 90th minute that they don't start panicking and they don't start lumping it into the box and you know both of the goals were kind of classic classic Leeds plays it was it was very technical down at Luton it was a quick counter-attack at Reading and I have to say and, and I have said this on Twitter a few times I actually think this Leeds team play at their best when they do counter-attack because they've got pace and, and they're very good at exploiting space and it's a shame in some respects that Bielsa won't relent to a point and, and kind of adopt a, a style that gives them more scope to do that brings the opposition on and, and creates space in behind because they are they are lethal in, in that sort of form but they again just um, they did it when they matched they were only precise once last night but they only needed to be precise once and Reading didn't look like scoring I didn't think it was going to be anything other than a 0-0 draw but to come away with you know six points rather than two which it could quite easily have been is, is, is a big deal at this stage Moscow you said you felt there was a goal in us last night yeah partly because of that change from last season I think last season I might have been feeling more goal against and maybe even the start of this one with Swansea and, and Derby against us 
But I just had a feeling, especially after Luton, we weren't going to get out of there without that win. Maybe it's it's more just uh, something in my bones rather than what I was seeing on the pitch. Just that feeling of Leeds getting stuff done this season and being alive to the chance. That's maybe where it was really impressive last night that we weren't really getting anywhere by by trying to play through them. But then when we saw that little 87th minute opportunity, everybody sprang to life. And no matter how jaded they were after long trips to Luton and back to Reading again and you know, all the training that Bielsa puts them through in between. I'm sure he banged in some triple sessions between the two matches, but still in the ninth minute for everybody to be switched on enough and go, ah, this is the one we've been waiting for. It was really impressive. Are we a different side to last year, Phil? To an extent, better at the back, certainly. Um, And looking again, very difficult to play through. I I think one thing that's helping this season is that an awful lot of the sides we've seen in the Championship are reasonably strong, reasonably competitive, but don't have a huge amount about them, particularly going forward. That was true of of Luton and it was true of Reading last night. And and like Moscow said, you you never kind of felt the jeopardy of Reading just sliding the knife between the ribs when you kind of least expected it or potentially when you you most expect it at the end of a game that that Leeds had dominated. But yeah, I I think Ben White's made a huge difference in, in he is, he's so much more suited to the way Bielsa plays than somebody like Janssen was that you've actually now got the, the full and proper structure at the back. And they, they are weaker in the air than they were when they had Janssen there winning a bundle of headers. But I think given Bielsa's tactics and, and the way he, he likes to play, you'd sacrifice that quite happily for, for the attributes that White's got and the way he's able to play out. And that that to me is the, is the bigger strength. I still think going forward they have the same issues of scoring chances, creating chances that almost can't be missed. And they are definitely guilty of literally trying to walk it to within one centimetre of the line before before scoring. Another couple of occasions last night where you're thinking, particularly guys like Hernandez and Cleek, you're thinking, just have a hit because they're, they're good from that distance and they can strike it from from that point. But with you, you guys out wide, the, the way they try to play through the middle, it is trying to be intricate. It is trying to score the perfect goal. But that aside, they are looking very strong. We touched on that yesterday with the difference Alioski made when he came on because he mm-hmm. was just being very direct with it. He wasn't trying to play intricate passes. He was just getting it out wide early, getting it in the box early. And all of a sudden we started actually looking like we could we could score a goal rather than just having this constant battle of there being 10 Reading players between someone on the edge yeah. of the box and, and the goal. I think with Alioski, without being unkind to him, you don't get... Oh, you don't look for a huge amount of quality from him but when he plays well and when he has his best games he runs hard he's very aggressive he gets himself into spaces and it did make a difference him and Costa Costa was a slightly slower burn but once Alioski came on you, you just felt little injection of of something to stop the entire evening falling flat I mean it, was, it had pretty much been flat from the start anyway but it did just keep alive the hope that something was going to come at the end and what do you think about Costa now? Better game from him last night than we've seen He's coming isn't he? Slowly it's really slow burn and, and not I mean, he's if Leeds take him permanently next summer, and it sounds like they're committed to doing that. I don't think there's any way out of that deal unless everybody decides that they'd, they'd rather not bother. And I don't see why Wolves would want to want to give that up. Then he's going to cost 15, 16 million quid. And, and he hasn't looked like that sort of player so far. The little flashes and, and little bits from him. And that type of moment last night is, is what he does. But part of the reason that he does it is because in that moment, there was space to attack. And I do look at him and I do sympathise when I see the number of defenders that he's been asked to to go by or, or play through. I took a, a photo in the second half when Leeds had a, it was a, a free kick, so it was a set piece, but out wide on the, the right touchline yesterday. And Reading had every single player back in their box, even though Leeds had at least two or three who were 20 yards further back and, and, and sitting deep. And you do think in those, if you, if you were Reading's manager and you put 11 players in the box and you conceded, it, it's hard to think about how furious he would be 
and really what more you could do. So it is difficult. And, and he's somebody who I think is going to do bits and pieces over the season. I think it's going to be really difficult for him to shine though in the way that he did with Wolves because he just doesn't have, he doesn't have the same state of play to work in. I enjoyed Costa last night. He seemed to have a little bit more of just trying everything he could to get past people. Whereas he's looked a little bit too easily defeated in some of his games so far. But the goal was the perfect opportunity with the space for him to run into and Alioski playing not the easiest of passes in the end. When you watch the replay, he did actually bang it at the touchline. There was a moment you thinking, oh, you've not just kicked it out for a goal kick. But he got there because that's his game. And there's a, if we do, well, when we do buy him in the summer, if we're in the Premier League, and I'm assuming we're promoted, I'm, <laughs> I've gone into that mindset now, let's just start looking at the next season in the Premier League. He might be better. He might be a good £15 million signing for a season in the Premier League where Man City and Liverpool aren't going to be packing 11 players behind the ball and yeah. trying to keep it tight. There will be the room he needs to, where he's not having to face up to four players and take them all on. There'll just be that big space behind uh, Andy Robertson, who I don't believe is a particularly talented player. I've not seen I watched the championship. I don't know if he's a, a, a good fullback, but I'm sure if Costa can get behind these players and make take advantage of that room, he might be £15 million well spent. If we stay down, then yeah, it, it looks a little less like it has a point. Yeah, I mean, if if you watch Liverpool, then Robertson is um, Roberto Carlos. Really. He's all right, really, if isn't get, he? If you get dragged up to Hamden, it's more Tony Capaldi or <laughs> Ferry Bassoni. You know, um, not quite, not quite that level. But you're right. I mean, Bielsa will surely try to play the same way in the Premier League if if they go up and play possession football. But he's not going to have it his own way in the way that he does in the Championship. And you're going to have some fairly crazy battle of wills when he goes to the Etihad. I say when. If he goes to... to We're up. The, it's when. It's a when. I'm doing this again. Um, if he's over there uh, against Guardiola, you've got two managers who essentially want to, to hog the ball. So you might find that for all Bielsa's best intentions, Leeds actually find themselves playing on the counter because they're not able to control possession in the way that they are away at Reading or away at Luton or, or grounds like that. And then suddenly it does open up for, for Costa. I mean, I spoke to Dave Edwards, who was at Wolves with him, and he said the season when Costa first came to life at Wolves, he was so good that they couldn't believe he was anywhere near the club. And I couldn't say that we've really seen a player at, at that level, but I think that's because Wolves would go to places like Newcastle, concede a lot of the ball, and then hammer them on the break. And in those circumstances, Costa was able to, to play to his own strength. So, yeah, it could it could well be an, an investment that pays off better further down the line than it does in, in this season when I still think it'll be a challenge for him to get regular starts. Given he doesn't really fit our system, do you think he was more of an auto-signing over summer? I would say so. I mean, Bielsa was very, very keen on wingers over the summer and, and in that transfer window and, and was very keen on Costa coming in. He was the one that um, he was badgering Radrazani about constantly. Uh, I mean, Bielsa and Radrazani first year obviously had plenty to do with each other, but not a huge amount. It wasn't like they were they were constantly in touch. But they started to get into the habit of what's happened over the summer and Costa was the one that Bielsa kept saying, are we signing this guy? Are we signing this guy? When are, when are we going to get it done? And you can tell how much it was wanted by the, the amount of money that they're paying. But I think Bielsa probably hoped that Costa would be good enough to make the difference regardless of the fact that he's got, you know, defence is sort of concertina into the final 30 yards of the pitch but it's not been easy like that and it's it, it has been difficult and without doubt his best moments have come when, when Leeds have sucked the opposition upfield and have, have left massive spaces in behind There was that little bit of improvement last night though when he's attacking into the penalty area and sizing people up and getting and we mentioned it last night winning corners which didn't seem to be much point in that in the end but <laughs> he was at least getting getting some progress and I suppose 
Bielsa is a, it's almost a, it's an education as well. We're seeing with Jack Harrison this season that a year under Bielsa, he's come back and suddenly he's, his assists and his goals all over the place. Um, so it could be this incremental improvement in, in Costa when he, he appears, you know, it's a long season in the championship, isn't it? Last three months, suddenly he could be the vital one. Yeah, they've done a sort of magic trick of turning attacking corners into defensive goal kicks, Leeds. I don't know how they've done it. I was working the stats out a while back and they've had something in the region of 140 this season, well beyond anybody else. And they've so so far scored one away at Wigan, which is quite a quite a percentage. But Harrison, yeah, I mean, I actually thought some of Costa's defensive work last night was good as well. Mm. But Harrison is Harrison's in this bizarre position where he seems to be playing left back, left wing on his own constantly. I mean, the, the formation in the second half, as best we could tell, was something along the lines of 3-1-5-1 with about five wingers on the pitch and, and, and pretty much everything everything thrown to the wind. And I, I saw a bit of criticism of, of Harrison's performance in the first half last night, but it is difficult running that entire channel. They, they seem to have gone to a back three in which they kind of load the right-hand side more than they do the left and he's just out on his own attacking and defending as best he can but I think he's been decent this season I think he's been better than last year and again option to buy him at the end of the season I think they also go for it if they, if they go up Yeah and we are better off now than we were last season so overall um, yes. do you think it's been a good season so far? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I was always really impressed. The season that Brighton got done in the playoffs after, uh, under Chris Hewton when they, they finished level on points with Middlesbrough and you wondered whether that was their chance and whether the season when they should have gone up and probably deserved to go up was going to be sort of ruin that for years. And and obviously Hewton got, got it together the following season. They went up automatically. And I'm really impressed with the way that Bielsa, not only Bielsa, but the players as well, have managed to pick up again after the shambles of the, the second leg against Derby and carry on as if it as if it hasn't happened. It's a long stretch, 46 games. And I always think when you're at the start of it, particularly when you know that the fixture list should have been Liverpool away, Man United away, City away, and it's suddenly Luton and Reading back to back Saturday to Tuesday. It must be an element of, of depression in that, an element of, of frustration. But they are they're, they're better off in terms of points. They're better off than the Norwich were at the top of the table, same stage of last season. And without looking like they're going to tear anybody to shreds, and we all keep saying, oh, it's got to come eventually. But then like a year and a half into Bielsa's reign, you sort of think maybe it's never quite going to happen. Uh, but they, they're almost halfway towards the playoffs now, if not more. And on that basis alone, given that it's not December, they're in great shape. Neck on the block then, is it playoffs? Guaranteed. We, we know about your famous prediction from the past, so. Do you know what? I think it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think, no. I, I, think, I, think, I think they'll get there. Yes, I do. I, I'm not I'm not going down the promotion route because I, I, I can't see it being anything other than extremely tight again. And I, I just have that feeling that they're going to be in the mix and they're going to be so close that it will, like last season, it will depend on a little patch in the end of three or four games where they'll either hold it together and they'll go up or they won't and they'll finish top six. But I would be, well, I don't know about you, but I'd be seriously disappointed from here if they if they didn't finish top six. I don't see where the, the challenge is coming from, really. I, I, I like West Brom. I think Fulham at some stage will come on strong because they always seem to in this league and they do have some really, really high calibre players down there. But aside from that, it, it's very much of a muchness. It does feel different, I think, from a, maybe a, pan, uh, a fan's perspective. Do you agree? I think people are just less giddy this year. At this point yeah. last season, we were still having that that initial shock of like, oh, I think we're actually quite good, which which was something completely new to us because we've just spent years of finishing 15th and sometimes dabbling with a, a slight relegation battle, sometimes dabbling with the playoffs, but never anything to get to get too giddy about. Whereas last year it was like, 
Jesus Christ, I think we're actually a good side all of a sudden. I don't think Bielsa would mind me saying this, but his press conferences are less interesting this season as well. And I think it all relates back to the fact that we are genuinely down to brass tacks now. It's it's all about results and it is all about promotion, which isn't to say that it wasn't last season, but there was the, the kind of magical element of him coming in and doing what he did with a squad that I think most of us would have taken to the abattoir like six months <laughs> six months earlier in, in the main and you get used to it you get, it becomes familiar so you, you you start to take it slightly for, for granted which I'm not sure that's necessarily what anybody's doing but I, I think people are now in the in the habit of expecting his teams to do what they do but yeah it, even in his press conferences with last season there was loads of philosophy there was loads of loads of fascination about all sorts of aspects of you know his past career and his life and everything else Nowadays, it's kind of boiling down to team news and, and not a huge amount else. And I think even he knows that if it doesn't happen this season, he'll be gone. If it doesn't happen this season, there are players at the club who will be gone, very good players. So it's it's kind of now or never. Great. Uh, <laughs> moving on to this weekend then, Middlesbrough and the return of Jonathan Woodgate and Robbie Keane. Will we be seeing Harry Kewell at Ellen Road? It's been talked about, hasn't it? I don't know what quite what's going on with, with Borough, but I, I've had a you know, good look at their games, a good watch of them. And in a lot of respects, they look absolutely awful. I mean, it, it's just peculiarities about them. They, they had Johnny Housen on the right side of a back three against Hull City, which Woodgate's explanation for that was, well, he came through the Leeds Academy, so is therefore adaptable. But I mean, there were arguments when Housen was here about whether or not he could play centre mid, let alone centre back. Um, and a lot of people felt that once he got further forward, number 10, and he used to be a striker in the academy, that he was in his in his niche. Um, but they're, they're so narrow. And... Some of the pressing looks, well, I mean, they they look very easy to play through, very easy to play through, very easy to get around. And it's not a surprise on the basis of what I've seen of them that they're the kind of where they are in the league. And I don't don't know whether Woodkick can get them out of this, to be honest. What do we put that down to? They've got a very young squad. They've got a squad that isn't suited to go up from this division. You always think of them as a team who should be in the mix, but they're not, they haven't got the resources anymore. They spent a lot when Monk was manager and they've paid for that and they still have players there who they'd like to shift and, and get off the wage bill. And essentially, Gibson is, is cutting his cloth to an extent and I think he would be more than happy to stay up this season with Woodgate just so that so that they can get a bit of respite. I watched that, that whole game and it was strange because as soon as they went, you know, they had the 2-0 lead and then had a player sent off and then after that you just kind of knew Hull aren't a great team they've got Bowen and they'll they'll get back to they got it back to 2-2 and he was the key player but there was just nothing about Middlesbrough that said they are not going to throw this lead away and that's a really that's a really difficult situation for a a team to be in. I mean, does he want to have to turn the twins if it's all about Leeds Academy and they, they'll have a good education? I can think of a lot of get Tom Lees up there and start sticking up front if he's <laughs> if he's this reliant on um, on the Thorpe Arch education for his his tactics. It just doesn't seem like any of it is any good. What is it? Two wins they've had all season, I think. And and um, George Culkin, one of our um, reporters, top lad George, who was who was on the Times, he um, he went to interview him. Yeah, end of October. And Woodgate said to him, people say the table doesn't lie, but actually this table does lie and we are, we are better than this. And as George said in his piece, essentially the table's saying one thing and Woodgate's saying another. But unfortunately, you're 17, 18 games in now and there always comes a point in the season where the table is absolutely telling the truth and we, I don't think we're, we're very far away from it now. No, it's lying though. <laughs> well, people say, people say that the league table tells the truth. It's not. It's lying. There are enough weak sides at the bottom of the division for Middlesbrough to, to get away with this. But I think whether they stick with Woodgate or not, it, it's going to be tight. And 
I do question whether, you know, you mentioned Harry Kuehl, but Robbie Keane as well and, and Woodgate in his first season as, as management. Where's the, the hardened mind to, to guide them through this sort of period, which must be really difficult and really, you know, really stressful for somebody who's new to the job. You, you would you would have thought he could have done with somebody in there who, who's seen it before and, and knows how to cope. Tony Pulis. Absolutely. Who Absolutely. he loved. Get, get him back in. He didn't, Woodgate claims that him and Tony Pulis were a brilliant combination. He loved working with him at Stoke. I interviewed him for 442 and he was saying that uh, Tony Pulis, when he went to Stoke as a player, completely changed his understanding of what defending is all about. And he's gone from that to then, yeah, three at the back with Housen involved. So he could just... So there you go, he wasn't kidding, yeah. <laughs> so would it be too much of a rewind for them to go and just beg Tony to just, just come and help him? I mean, they were second at this point last year, so... And the squad has not changed that dramatically over summer, from what I could tell. It's a lot of the same players are there still. They're just, they've not been, been able to buy buy the players they wanted. So maybe he's trying to play three at the back, creative football with the Tony Pulis side, which is potentially too too much of a... I, I think there's an element of that that, that they, they could probably do with going back to basics slightly. But they've got, you know, Sombalonga and Fletcher up front. It hasn't worked for either of them. They've been pretty maligned up there and, and I can imagine mentally would perhaps prefer to be in a different place. I just think it's not good. It's not good for, for Borough and I don't imagine he'll be hugely looking forward to Saturday's game at all. I can't wait. I think, <laughs> I think we're going to win and win big I just have a feeling that because they haven't got the discipline that Luton or Reading have got to pack and be that composed and and that steady and that difficult to break down I can see this being the the big win that we've been looking for and it would be just the right time as well if you want a, a story of the season where we've we're saying before about how it feels for us whether it's different to last year from a, a fan's perspective and even just a few months ago weeks ago we were so worried about the late goals we conceded to Swansea and Derby that you, we did think it's going to be the same as last year and we, we won't do much gradually improved now so we're grinding out these wins getting away points now away wins going unbeaten and if we could just top that off by absolutely spanking Johnny Woodgate's Middlesbrough at Elland Road just before Christmas the start of December it would be it would be a nice time to do it, wouldn't it? And we've got a song now as well, so we can. We, now that's ready, that can be cranked out after twenty minutes when we're falling up. <laughs> well, everything's come together. But you hope so, don't you? I and mean, we all, in a in a fit of madness, predicted a home win on Saturday, and you know, on the podcast earlier in the week. And we're not uh, notoriously optimistic on that podcast. But what are you going for, Phil? Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I I think this is probably set up for Leeds to to win quite tidily if they if they play well and. I don't think anybody in middle, Middlesbrough knows where the sort of Ellen Road winning performance is going to come from for them. And I mean, we'll come on, I think we'll, we'll come on to Woodgate again just before the, the end of the pod. But there's something about this game that reminds me a lot about the game that Strachan had up there in, in 2010. And, you know, I sort of wonder whether this might, might follow a, a similar theme. But it's quite funny because I, it would be so nice to get a, a heavy win. And, and especially because they're on a run of four, four victories back to back to, to kind of see it move forward with, with something looking really comprehensive but I do think this season when we're talking about the differences one one of them seems to be that and I don't think it's Bielsa doing this but I think the players are slightly self-regulating themselves at the end of games now I, the, the whole gung-ho thing about chase a second goal when you're 1-0 up and there are 95 minutes on the clock just seems to seems to have gone it was kind of creeping back in at Luton where I was doing the old 1980s English thing of run it into the corner flag and kill as much time there as possible but but more often than not, I, I think they've they've started to realise that there isn't much point in risking these things. There's no point in being seen as a, a flash team who can win, you know, 4-0 on the day if 
you know, repeatedly you, you're conceding late goals and you're throwing away leads. And they just, yeah, it's, in, it's intelligent. And I think all round Middlesbrough will find it difficult to deal with on Saturday. And having built it up so much and trashed Middlesbrough, we look forward to the 1-0 away win. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. See you next week for that one. So we've only got a few weeks left of the decade and you've picked your best team from that 10-year window, Phil. Yes, let's fight. Much consternation. So mm-hmm. uh, how do you even set about putting something like that together? What's your thought process? The first thing I did was to to go through season by season and, and refresh my mind about who had been in the team at, at any given time. And there were some excellent players in there. There was some absolute dross in there. And, and the mind boggles, actually, when you go through back through some of the teams and look at what leads were were either trying to stay in the championship with or trying to get out of the championship with and, and falling a long way short. It's funny because the, the the formation I've gone for is not a formation I would ever pick or indeed anybody, especially Bielsa, a 4-4-2. But I did want to sneak Beckford and Becchio in there. I didn't fancy Beckford's chances of playing as a, a wide forward or as a number 10 particularly. Um, likewise, Becchio, I felt they both had to, to be in the box. And in some respects, it was difficult. It was difficult up front and it was difficult at the back. The, the midfield was, I felt, fairly easy to pick but it's funny that there have been some some really quality players at Leeds over the last 10 years just not enough of them have passed through at the same time Yeah it's kind of been an inverse bell curve this one it started quite well at the start of the decade yeah. and then we, we finished up with another good side at the end of the decade when you consider 10 years ago promotion for 10 years goes to show how much time we've wasted yeah. doesn't it as well and, and if you run through the middle seasons from kind of Warnock on to really Gary Monk with the exception of the odd player here or there, you can pretty much disregard the entire lot. The very few from that who'd even even get a look in. But yeah, top and tail of the decade, at the start and at the end, there's plenty of plenty of choices. So let's run through a few of them. We'll we'll look at um goalkeeper and centre backs this week and then we'll pick your wide players next week. And if you want to see the full um the full lineup, have a look at Phil's article on the athletics. So uh, we've gone four four two. Bielsa would be furious. He would be furious, although like I said, he was kind of three one five one last night, so I don't know what would make him happy at the moment. Yeah, we can imagine you standing on the sidelines directing these players, getting them to move around at your behest. And and be also behind me going, no, no, <laughs> hey, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> so in nets, who have you gone for? I've gone for Rob Green. And again, I, I don't want to be disrespectful here, but I think there is no outstanding goalkeeper uh, or there has been no outstanding goalkeeper in, in the last 10 years. A lot of people mentioned Casper um, Schmeichel to me, but I think... Schmeichel looks like a better keeper now than he was when he was at Leeds on the basis of what's gone on at Leicester and Leeds conceded a lot of goals in the season when he was here in part because Grayson didn't seem remotely bothered about what was going on at the back or or if he was he he just decided that by the the point of the season where it was crucial they were just going to play as they had and and go hell for leather anyway so Schmeichel I I guess could could have had a shout I think Casilla has been very decent as well but the Derby game still counts against him and I think you want to get further down the line with Casilla and back to the point where it really matters to know whether or not he is actually going to pass as the the kind of Champions League winner Real Madrid player who, who they brought in Green it took it took him some time to to shake off his ring rust. He was um he was at QPR and he wasn't getting a game and he was spending Saturdays shopping with his wife and Leeds kind of thought that he was somebody who would look for a Premier League move and be able to get um, and when they spoke to him they found that actually he was more than happy to come and he they came for about ten grand a week which was a, a kind of a steal for a, a admittedly he was thirty six but he you know former Premier League keeper and an England international and he was rusty to start with and there were a few mistakes and the one that stands out is the simple header for Gale against Newcastle at home at Elland Road but I can't think of a single error that he made after Christmas and he was safe as houses through that period and I think 
as much as he would not have suited Bielsa at all because the, the limitations is in his game are, are exactly the areas where Bielsa wants to keep her to be strong. I think he was perfect for Monk and perfect for the, that style of team. And I'm not really sure who pushes him out the side. I, I don't think there's anybody else that looks like a, looks like a more consistent or, or solid option. Um, so green for me. Any thoughts on Anker Grin maybe at the start of the decade? Yeah, I mean, he, he, was, he was kind of gone by the middle of 2010, although he did play most of the 09-10 season because Shane Higgs was was injured. Had, had Higgs been fit, I don't think he would have played at all, but he was obviously there for the, the Old Trafford game. He, um, he Again, that season was top and tailed, so he didn't play the start. He didn't get the, the Bristol Rovers game at the end of it either. There were definite weaknesses in Ankergren's game, handling in particular, um, crosses and, and so on. Uh, so I think he falls a little bit behind Rob Green for me. But again, he, he, he does drop into the category of keepers who were certainly decent, if not better than that. What about the ones that you scratched off the list straight away? I'm presuming Vidval didn't make the cut, maybe Silvestri? No, Rahubka. A lot of people have been asking me to pick my worst 11 of, of the decade, which I think you've done, have you not? Yeah, we've been doing it on Yeah, the, go on then. Yeah. So who was, in, who was in goal? It was of all time was ours, wasn't it? So yeah. Ah, okay. we didn't We didn't bother with the keeper either. I think Rahubka seemed too <laughs> obvious. <laughs> I've never seen a man make a mistake in pretty much every game. He only played about... Did he play about eight games or something? Yeah. And he, he cost us in pretty much every single one of them. So even, he's, he's going to struggle to beat that, I think. Even before the, the famous Blackpool game, there was a Coventry in a, another match where everybody said, this is the worst keeper we've already had. And it was like yeah, he, it was he started that match. It? Yeah. It's like he started that match. It's like, well, you want to see bad? <laughs> I'll show you. <laughs> and Viedvald is still putting in a pretty good uh, post-leads bid for the, the worst jersey. Did you see him at, in Germany at the weekend? Yes. Failing to kick a ball. Yeah, a ball bouncing towards him. Not a difficult back pass to trap. It just looked as he... But he somehow ended up with his his arms in the air and his, his legs in the air as if he was jumping backwards from a... Like a dog was yapping at his ankles or something and he just booted it straight to their, their player. So... I mean, it's it's a strong uh, strong candidate, and um, I suppose long time listeners to the Square Ball podcast will, will be wondering whether BPF fits in between any of these. You didn't consider Bailey Peacock Farrell as a no as a potential again, best. He, he, he certainly gets a pass without any doubt. Um, I don't think he did a, a huge amount wrong, or certainly not enough to fall into the the Viedvald Rahubka category. I mean, replacing Green with Viedvald was just staggeringly bizarre and and I think that the biggest problem with, with that was that the club obviously decided we are going to play a certain way and we are going to play with a sweeper keeper with a coach who pretty much just decided he would go with it and, and have a go whereas now you've got a coach who actually wants a sweeper keeper and knows how to, to build around one so Casilla you know Casilla fits in quite nicely I think there are aspects of Casilla which would probably cause managers who played differently some pretty sleepless nights but yeah, it, it was it was very odd. And I know Green was, was very unhappy as well to kind of be told that Vival's coming in. Vival, will, well, you can compete with him, but he's likely to be first choice. And I think at that point, um, on the bench at Huddersfield, start, suddenly started to appeal. Am I mad for having fond mid-decade memories of Paddy Kenny? I mean, I didn't enjoy the Warnock era remotely, but there were times when he actually thought, okay, he follows Warnock around like a, like a pet, but not actually a terrible keeper. He was a very, very good keeper at Sheffield United. I don't remember him being a good keeper for Leeds. I don't remember him being a particularly poor keeper. I just think he was very meh, really. Mm. Um, but then in keeping with that entire era. I think that's the thing with, their keeper, with the keepers at that time. We just changed them every year and they never really got any better. It's like, is, is Higgs better than Ankergren? Is, is Lonergan mm. better than 
better than Higgs. It just kind of went on and it was just this tick over of like, maybe eventually we'll get someone decent. And like you say, Rob Green probably does just about come out as the best from that, that group. It has been like 10 years of a completely pointless argument where every season we go like, who's going to be our, who's our best keeper this year? Like, really, there's, there's not a discussion. We're just going to have a bad one. That's... <laughs> How important is a keeper to a side then, Phil? I mean, you need one. Well, <laughs> well de- depending on who it is, sometimes you don't. I mean, the, like, if, if you haven't picked one in your list 11 of all time, it's fairly damning about the, the appalling options who, who could have gone in there. It's crucial in different ways. If you play in a Bielsa side, you need to be able to to distribute the, the ball in the way that, that Casilla does at, at different ranges and with, with a lot of accuracy. And I mean, this is a different subject, but obviously he's got this racism charge hanging over over him um, today is the the deadline for him to reply to that. He'll he'll deny it and he'll he'll request a, a personal hearing. But if he gets a suspension and it would be for minimum of six games, then we're talking about Meslier, the the young French teenager. I would think coming into the team and he's very highly thought of. He's they think a lot of him in France. But the the question is, can he spread the ball around at the same pace and with the same accuracy that Casilla does? And and in a Bielsa team, that's essential. I think in a Monk team and the way they were they were set up you need somebody like Green who is pretty rock solid when it comes to handling and, and goal line saves and, and everything else it took him a bit of time to to get back to that sort of level because he hadn't played much at, at QPR but yeah it's essential absolutely essential um, and I think more essential than ever these days for the teams who try to play out from the back I suppose it makes it harder to judge a, a goalkeeper for something like this because Casilla can't really I suppose why I have a good memory of Paddy Kenny is I can remember him making quite a few saves because he had Wotton and Salukas in front of him. So mm. even even if he was chipping six at Hillsborough, you would have to save a couple and it'd look all right. Whereas you, you can probably count on fingers of your with one hand how many times Casilla has actually had to make a good save. So almost there's a there's a case for saying that the best goalkeeper of this season in particular is Ben White. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Just yeah, pick, yeah. Him, pick him and not, not worry about I mean, anybody behind. You, you remember the start of the season with um, Christiansen when there was a lot said and written about the fact that Viedvald had gone for however many hours without conceding a goal and then it turned out that his only save had been from um, Aiti um, against Fulham, I think, in about six or seven games and it did give it a slightly, slightly different context which soon became clear. Well, on to the centre-backs then. Um, mm. You've picked two, which is normally a good place to start from. I, I do have a disagreement with what you've picked, but I'll yeah. let you explain what, no, you've the, picked, what you've picked and why first. Johnny Harrison? Well, well, this is it, you see. Yeah, I'm a bit behind the times picking two, um, two big, hardcore, heading centre-backs. Yeah, that should really have gone for Hernandez. Quite honestly, I could have picked four centre-backs. I could have picked Janssen, Bartley, Cooper and... Ben White and Ben White only misses out on the basis that when I was writing this he'd played about 13 games and I had that thing at the back of my head that if we suddenly got to March and April and it had all gone horribly wrong and we decided that yeah he is a a League One player who should either be at Peterborough or Newport then it would look slightly daft but I mean that's evidently not going to happen so he only misses out on that basis and it was I can't even really justify leaving out Liam Cooper either. But I did go for Bartley and Janssen, who are Monk's, um, Monk's pairing in, in 16-17. I'd, I'd have picked Janssen regardless, but Bartley got in a, ahead of Cooper. And I think the, re- the reason is that it's more difficult to play in a Bielsa side because of the way you're expected to distribute the ball and, and how good your passing is supposed to be and your anticipation, also the, the area that you have to, to cover. But you can't forget that Monk essentially set that team up to defend and to be conservative. And and if you look at the amount of work that him and Janssen used to get through, the, the, the average of about 20 to 25 clearances a game, 
it was fairly remarkable that the defensive record was as good as it was. And particularly because they, they'd been so inept when it came to um, defending set pieces in the first month that at that stage, we were all expecting Monk to get sacked after about six or seven games. And it was that turnaround, that um, the change of defending from corners and, and free kicks and, and using Jansen and Wood as free men that, that made a, a huge difference. And Bartley was a big part of that as well. I mean, Cooper struggled in that first month under Monk. And I think that was because it was just constant bombardments and that was the way they defended. Whereas I think Bartley and Janssen would struggle far more in, in a Bielsa team because of the way that he asked them to play, which isn't to disregard the fact that West Brom are, you know, will go top of the league again if they, they win their, their game in hand. So Bartley nicks it, but quite honestly, Cooper could feel pretty aggrieved about that. Bartley on the basis of one season because I've got him down as about 50 appearances and that's six, right. six crucial goals as well. That's right, yeah. No, he, he did score some crucial goals although I didn't factor that in that in so much and and w- when they got to the end of the, the following season the Christensen and, and Heckenbottom season he was pretty much number one target Bartley. They'd been so bad that they realised that he was somebody they could really do with and, and, and wanted to wanted to sign permanently and you know, I think he'd probably been too expensive in the end. He was about six million quid from, from West Brom and be also coming in kibosh that one because he looked at Jansen Cooper and Berardi and decided that that was enough for him and no centre-backs needed so having kind of sounded out Bartley on the quiet initially it all went very quiet and he was left in the dark until he he did the move to to West Brom but the club thought an awful lot of him they valued him really highly and I think he I think he merits being in there but I could understand anybody who thought Cooper should be in there instead Let's talk Jansen then Yes Uh, A character who history's kind of in the short term anyway it's rewriting him as, as disruptive but he was good yes. he was a good defender for us disruptive is not unfair it's it's unfair to say that he constantly was but he he had there were issues in, in that respect and he could be difficult and he could be very sort of Janssen centric in the sense of making it all about him I mean there's there a funny story I was speaking to people about the, the deal when it was done of him and Martin Dallin, his agent coming over from Torino um, to, to discuss the move and twice walking out into the lift at Ellen Road because they, they couldn't agree on money and were threatening to walk out and being dragged back in to, uh, you know, to get the deal done and, and to get him signed. And, you know, there was, there was always a bit of that that, that went on with Janssen. But again, like he, he made the, the championships play, um, team of the year in the season when there was an excellent Newcastle side in the division. There was a very strong Brighton side in the division. There was a very good Fulham side. There was a Huddersfield team who did not concede many goals. And, and he was the pick of, of the two centre-backs picked. He, he was he was one of them. And I always felt that on his day when he played well, he looked like a centre-back that a lot of teams and, and quite a lot of Premier League teams would, would take. And I can see why he went... On, on a sort of political basis, I can understand tactically why Bielsa wanted to replace him and why he would most certainly not swap him for White now. But I think it, it's easy for history to rewrite Janssen as a pain in the arse, but quite honestly, he was a he was a good player. Very good player. How do you think he feels about the move to Brentford? Because it was only six months yeah. before he was being linked with Southampton for 20 million quid and Premier League teams are interested in him. Brentford just felt, it feels very un like with such a small crowd and everything. People will know that, if, if they've read about it, will know the, the kind of background that he was he was late back in Bielsa's first summer so didn't you know didn't get into the starting lineup straight away. Bielsa would have liked him back quicker. He was complaining in the second summer that they weren't getting enough time off after the playoffs. He, he was wanting other international players to, to kind of argue the toss over that. But you had some like Peacock Farrell and Dallas who were back for day one because they knew how Bielsa worked and they knew how he thought and, and they and, you know, understandably wanted to, to curry favour with him. So it reached the point where Bielsa wanted him gone. Janssen knew he had to go. Brentford was pretty much the only offer on, on the table. And I'd be surprised if Janssen was chuffed to bits I mean I actually think Brentford are a really good club and I think when they get moved to a new stadium and if they manage to get out of the cycle of constantly selling the good players that they turn up 
you know, every single summer, then they will have a chance of getting out of the division. So it could ultimately be quite a good move. But I don't think in any way, midway through last season or the year when he was winning, you know, he was getting into the championships team of the year, that he envisaged Brentford and Griffin Park being his next step. I think he thought of himself as a Premier League player and it had to be done because it had reached that point where something had to happen and there was nothing else available. But yeah, I don't think he would have... I don't think he'd have been crawling over glass for that one. There was something quite tragic about the signing photograph, wasn't there? Um, with, the, yeah. with, with the broken biro and it's had a, sort of a, a hostage vibe about it. Yes, yeah. I mean, they, they do run that risk signing photos. I always love the pictures of players who look thoroughly, <laughs> thoroughly peeved by the fact that they've got a nice big pay rise or whatever it is and, and are there with the, the new club shirt. But yeah, I mean, it, as I say, I, I think there were a lot of, there were links with Southampton, other clubs like that. And there were periods where you thought if somebody was going to come in and buy him, it was going to be a move to probably the lower end of the, the Premier League. And as it is, it was kind of a move to mid-table stroke lower end of, of the championship. But, Brentford are very good at making money on players and it wouldn't surprise me that much if they find themselves flogging him for 12 million at some point down the line. Well, we will speak about Ben White a little bit, bit later on. Before we get to that then, Ben White, is he better or is he just different? He's better. Yeah, no, he's better. Um, he, he Technically, there's a piece, um, Adam Crafton, who writes for our website, um, travelled to Luton game with his um, with his family on Saturday and, and his mum was quoted in the piece as saying, some kids are really naturally talented and he isn't one of them. He, he just works really hard. But when I look at him play, he looks extremely gifted. You know, technically, he looks to have great touch on him, great control and, and everything else. I think the, the the one weakness for him or slight weakness is aerially. I don't think he's as, as dominant in that position, you know, in that situation as somebody like Jansen or Bartley. But when, you, when you're when you in a Bielsa team, to an extent you don't need to be and that's not what, if, if you've got to make compromises and sacrifices somewhere in your game, that's a pretty good good place to, to make it and I, if he carries on like this I cannot see him ever being back in the championship until he's about 37 and he needs one last contract as Rob Green did More on White then shortly first of all and who else came close to your centre-backs you said Cooper and White were there in the mix what about any others Richard Naylor maybe Paddy Kiznorbo Sol Bamba No Bamba again very good down at Cardiff and I I, I love Sol to bits we've stayed in touch since then and he's a funny guy despite having played for Hibs but I think I think he did, he did his best to do not a great deal for them which was great he brings back memories of those scary bomb scare runs out of defence into the opposition half where you thought mm, this is going to this is going to end badly so no he, he I, I think if um, he played like he'd played down at Cardiff like Busquets then he'd, he'd probably have been probably have been laughing because Noble didn't play enough in the decade. He was injured in March of of that the of the promotion season and um, and never really got it together again after that. It was a bad Achilles. And Naylor, I I thought a lot of. Um, I I definitely rated, but doesn't come into the category of White, Cooper, Janssen and Bartley. Not for me. There's a great uh, detail on Sol Bamba's Wikipedia page that I was looking at the other day ahead of him uh, potentially coming back with Cardiff, where it says what uh, while at Leicester. Uh, Sven Joran Eriksson compared his style of play to Franz Beckenbauer and I was like that can't be right so I, I looked at the the reference and I googled Sol Bamba Franz Beckenbauer and the actual quote is uh, it's like he's a, he's a really good player but sometimes when he runs up the pitch like uh, Franz Beckenbauer it's the worst thing you've ever seen in your life and it's <laughs> everybody absolutely dreads what's going to happen yeah hence the nickname Bombscare Bamba <laughs> yeah but if you're in a press conference with no good quotes you think right okay we'll have that that'll do just carve it up and, and it'll be it'll be fine oh no I mean that, that game down at Cardiff where he played as a defensive midfielder um, the famous Cleek night where Cleek slipped and Christine decided that that was it and um, you're, you're back off to Holland yeah I mean we, we all came away joking that he did look like Busquets that, that night and you just couldn't believe the, the kind of transformation Was there any love for uh, Tom Lees in your assessment? 
I like Tom and he, and he was he was a decent centre back. He is a, a decent centre back, but again limited, I think mm. technically technically limited. So good championship player, but I think amongst the four that that I've mentioned, much better options. And I think as well the partnerships that you had, Cooper and White is turning into a better partnership than Jansen and Bartley was and I think by the end of this season might well stand out as the the best of of the bunch, but Jansen and Bartley together had great understanding and knew knew exactly exactly what they were doing and yeah I think I think that that's a big part of it as well how much truth was there in the room that those two didn't get on off the pitch because there was they were sort of, they did like making up pictures on Twitter and things didn't they yeah no the, there was there was some truth but it wasn't a case of they didn't get on from the outset it came latterly you'll remember that uh, that Jansen was dropped for the game at home to Brighton that, that leads 1-2-0 um, and then was out of the side until Liam Cooper kicked somebody in the face or the leg at, away at Reading and, and got a, that was got a that long... Liam Cooper 1.0, not the 2.0 version long, we've got long now. Long, long ban, yeah. I mean, look, it, it, pro- it probably was worth the ban, but that is that is the sort of situation where I, I do kind of look and think, mm, it's a Leeds player, he's going to get hammered here. Yeah, and and so he did. But the, the background to the to Janssen being dropped was that there was an incident at, at Thorpe Arch, basically a clash between Janssen and, and Matt Grimes. And depending on who you speak to, Grimes was kicked in the face or was kicked somewhere by Jansen and there was a there was a big to do in which Bartley got involved they were they'd been teammates at Swansea obviously Ailing got involved it, it all got um they all got very heated it all got a bit out of hand and Monk's um answer to it was to to drop Jansen for um for the Brighton game so I, I wouldn't I don't think I'd go as far as saying that they didn't get on and and they played well together but that was certainly a that was a definite flashpoint right at, right at a stage where Leeds didn't need it and blokes do fall out with other blokes it does do. happen it has been known they do I don't think James would be the first player to have taken a, a boot in the face in fact I went to see um, Simon Walton not so long ago um, he was down at Haven and, and Waterlooville he's, he's coaching down there player coach and he reckoned that he on any given day he could kick, punch, bite whoever um, on the training field but like you said given some of the other players who were there it was kind of fair game uh, players who obviously diametrically opposite to all those wouldn't make the cut Giuseppe Belushki is the, the name that immediately springs to mind as a... Yes, not only because of the way he was as a player, just because of generally the, the kind of atmosphere around him and the total antipathy that there seemed to be between him and the crowd right from from an early stage. And again, when you start going through the you know the middle part of the decade, it's not that there aren't good pros in there. You know, guys like Jason Pierce, a dead honest player and actually good player at a certain level, but it's, it's just not knocking on the door when you've got people like Cooper and Janssen and, and White you know, who are, who are there to be picked. All right, next week we'll move on to your wide players. We'll hear your picks for the fullbacks and the wingers. Looking forward to this and we will pick you apart even more. Easy picks, out wide and a great interview with Tony Capaldi in there. Right, Phil, talk to me about Ben White. Please, can we keep him? Please, can we keep him? Please, can we keep him? Oh, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? If, if Leeds don't go up, then no, in the same way as it was going to be with Dan James and in the same way as it would be with somebody like Jack Harrison. Um, I don't know what Brighton were valuing White at before this season started, but they're, they're looking at £20 million now and, and that seems reasonable given the fees that have been paid for guys like um, Adam Webster, um, paid by them. He is in, in that ballpark. There's going to be a hell of a lot of competition and I think if if assuming that nobody gets busy with him next month and that this rolls on to, to next summer and assuming that Brighton are actually willing to listen to offers and they do have a lot of centre-backs down there so it's not out of the out of the question. If Leeds go up, I think they'd have a very decent shot of um, of getting involved there and, and of convincing them this is a, a good place to stay. But at the moment, Liverpool are scouting him constantly. They've got one of their talent scouts who is watching him regularly and 
very, very keen and certainly pushing him Liverpool's way. Um, they, I think I think they do see the, the aerial weakness in him, but in the rest of his game, they see somebody who could quite easily be brought up to standard, no problem, and and who could get an awful, awful lot better. You know, with, with the right coaching and with the right players around him and, and everything else, you, you've also got a bit of interest from uh, Manchester United, Boo Hess, Wolves, Leicester City. Let's be honest, with one exception, all pretty good options and you know successful options at the moment so it is going to be if he carries on like this all, all season it's going to be an absolute bum fight I, if, if he carries on like this I can't honestly believe that Brighton would try to find some place in, in their team for him but he looks as I said he, he looks like a player who shouldn't really be playing at this level and given that he never played in the division before this season that's quite something to say It was interesting the the Adam Crafton piece that you referred to earlier with his his family that he was a very sick boy until he was uh, a teenager, all this mm-hmm. stuff about his, his autoimmune system just plain did not work. So he was in hospital for months at a time. And even they were saying that they, they look at him now and they can't believe that their little Ben is a is an incredible professional athlete when his appendix had to come out when he was seven and he was in hospital for months because he was getting infected with yeah. everything going. It's mad. Yeah, and I mean, he, he obviously was in Southampton's academy as well, and they said no thanks at sixteen. Went over to Brighton, which happens to quite a lot of players. But um, I, you know, I, I don't think at that stage was was necessarily guaranteed that, that it would work out for him. And and he's twenty two already, which is quite funny because he's had you know he's had time at Newport, he's had time at Peterborough, but he hasn't played at this level. And it's quite a, an advanced age to be suddenly coming into the championship as somebody who's seen as a sort of academy footballer, which which really he isn't anymore. But he's yeah. He's he's going to be popular. Him, there's going to be plenty of plenty of people after him. We should start spreading his medical records around. These absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That's too ill to do. He's yeah. too ill. You can't have him. You you can't. Adam, Adam might have been doing that job for us. You see, <laughs> his other appendix is dodging it. <laughs> <laughs> and what did Adam really sort of pick out of spending time with his family? Then I think he picked out the fact that they they are ultra ultra down to earth, and and so is White. And I, I did a piece on him right back at the the start of the season. I, I spoke to a couple of guys who'd been teaching of his at school to various people who'd worked with him through his career so um, Mike Flynn down at Newport and, and also um, Simon Ruskus on the, the academy staff down at, at Brighton and, and they all said the same thing which is he's a massively unassuming guy who just gets his head down works hard and, and I think what, what I was talking about earlier his mum saying you're almost underappreciating I think she might just be being coy or, or being modest, but almost underappreciating the, the obvious ability that, that he does have kind of sums up his attitude and, and the way he is and, and you can see why he's going to be a very good professional because his head's properly screwed on it was a nice detail isn't it? His, his dad's either a, a labourer or a, a gardener mm. that um, Ben goes and does some work with him like uh, yeah. David Batty when he used to help out his dad on the bins in the summer and rope Vinnie Jones in that he just gets involved with some uh, carrying some cobbles around and which is um, unusual for a, a modern player and if Bielsa catches him he'll probably be actually I'd love about, it Bielsa will be all over yeah, it yeah, I was going to say Bielsa, all this, Bielsa had them picking up rubbish right all parts he'd so, have yeah, all his players fruit picking throughout the summer if he could wouldn't he well obviously Louis Coyle's got um, his family are greengrocers and so are Alex Cairns actually as I found out recently they're, they're together over at, at Fleetwood um, so they, you know, there's an empire to be built for them there but they're, they're similar sort of sort of guys they used to both used to do work on the market stalls and, and everything else and I don't think it's bad grounding at all talking of Alex Kearns the thing he did with him um, about the death of his brother mm. how was that difficult to put together? It wasn't actually I think in part because I know Alex from the academy he he knows me and, and it made it easier to kind of broach the subject of doing that it, it was suggested to me by Lucy Ward who was the old education and welfare officer at, at Leeds until Chilino did what he did and she 
she was saying to me that he's done extremely well to kind of fashion a career for himself because of what happened to him at a really critical point in his in his career. And and for anybody that doesn't know, his his brother Blake was sixteen when he died in a car crash in, in two thousand and fourteen. And there, there were five teenagers in the car at the moment at, at the time, all all friends who were literally nipping out for a McDonald's one November night and spun on a corner coming out of Connorsborough and um, hit another car coming the other way and were pronounced, well, most were pronounced dead at the scene and, and a couple in hospital afterwards. And I, um, when, I, when I spoke to Fleetwood's press officer, I said to him, look, if he doesn't want to do this, then I totally understand and just pass on my best wishes. And I'm, I'd rather not do it if he doesn't feel comfortable. But when I had a, a bit of a preliminary chat with, with Alex, I was just saying to him, you know, it'd be nice to do a piece where you, you talk a bit about who your brother was, what he was like, what, what he was into. And also a bit that's a, a bit of a tribute to him, but also looks at the, the way that, that Alex has coped with it and, and the way that he's gone on to be a, a really good established League One keeper. Um, and he spoke incredibly well about it when when I went over to Fleetwood to, to chat to him. Uh, and I mean, the details are, are absolutely awful. And the day we published the article, I'm sure he won't mind me saying, but I, I got a text from Gary Devonport of um, Talking Shot fame. Gary's a firefighter and he was saying that, that he was he was on shift that night and that a lot of the guys who attended, the, the emergency services who attended, found it very difficult to get over that because of how severe and how appalling it was to find, you know, five fatalities, all of whom were, were essentially kids. And, you know, Alex spoke about being in Sheffield on the night with Alex Mowat and um, Lewis Walters, both of whom were, were academy players, and of literally getting a call in the nightclub from his, his elder brother, Stefan, who was away in Manchester at the time on a separate night out basically saying to him there's been an accident and it sounds like it's, it's very very serious and by the time Alex got over to Doncaster Royal Infirmary him and his parents were essentially being told that they were going to have to do an identification of a body and I mean to hear him talk about that and makes it sound rightly like the the worst thing you could ever go through um, and it was it was terribly bad for them I think they I think they struggled to cope with it but, but had a lot of support and and I think the thing that struck me was that he and his family should be really proud of the fact that he's now a well-established League One goalkeeper I mean I never felt that Alex was going to make it at Leeds I didn't think he was quite up to that level but he clearly is a very very good goalkeeper and as a bloke he's clearly an absolute diamond as well and I get the impression that he's carried a lot of the strain and a lot of the a lot of the pressure um, that's been on the family I think he's helped to, to cope with it and to deal with with a lot of it. And they should be very proud of him. And I, I think the, the club leads should be very proud of the fact that their academy helped to fashion somebody like that. There's something uh, good in, in both him and Louis Coyle and what they're doing at Fleetwood and the way that they're they're blossoming. I, I assume that we're eventually going to sell Louis Coyle to Fleetwood. And there's been a lot of uh, talk like we should have him in our team. And I think to an extent, every academy product can't come through and be a Leeds United player because no, there simply absolutely. isn't room. But when you look at Alex Cairns and uh, and Louis Coyle over there and just think, well, that's, that's a good result. That's something that the, the academy and the people that work with should be proud of. And as long as it's not okay, you know, they're not getting booted out on the rear and saying, we don't want you here anymore. It's like we've kept Louis Coyle as long as we can and, and done right by him and just kept him where he, he can play and, and be happy in the the pair of them forging a, a good League One career if they come up into the championship eventually. Nobody should have any kind of uh, bitterness or, or regrets about them not being at, at Leeds. It's kind of it's it's good to see players 
come through and carry on. I did see Louis, but he was in his pants, so I didn't think it was the the best point to, to start discussing the January transfer window, really. And um, but him and him and Cairns live together over there, so he's waiting for Alex to give him a to give him a lift home. But I think it, it'll have helped Alex as well having having Louis over there. Like I said, that they've got the potential for this massive fruit and veg empire if if either of them get tired of football at any stage, because both of the parents have done really well in it. Well, to contrast the uh, the five a day at the greengrocers, let's talk pizza. Oh yes. Uh, I'm, yes. sure, I'm sure the coils would be disgusted uh, at that. The, the the story that you recounted of the pizzas being ordered on the bus in Luton, I'd forgotten that until does you... Any, does anybody remember that? I do remember it being yeah. reported. The time was 2006, um, again, away to Luton. Try to block out the John Carver, do you, do you call it yeah. him, era? Just his his involvement just feels like a blank. and That's the way I've always preferred it. I mean, as far as you're aware, do, do players do the carb loading? Because I mentioned this because um, I've listened to that Peter Crouch podcast mm-hmm. and yeah. he's talked about this, that there's a lot of carb loading goes yeah. on. Because if you think about what footballers do, they essentially miss a meal from uh, pre-match until sort of seven in the evening, let's say. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so it, it has to be done. And it was a little bit unfair on Carver because pieces as a way of carb loading is, is not or was not that unusual it, it, just at the time nobody really paid any attention to nutrition nobody in you know sort of public public sphere was particularly aware of them doing that they'd been stuffed 5-1 by Luton I mean it's weird when you look back at the game and you look at who was playing I think they had Hayden Fox they had Adam Johnson on loan and obviously they tried to sneak out without speaking Carver was finished and Carver knew he was finished and to be fair to him he did phone all of us later just for a chat you know and say look I, it wasn't that I didn't want to speak it was just that there didn't seem to be much point because I would I was done but all the players sneaked away as well apart from Eddie Lewis who bless him was being interviewed as this huge stack of Pizza Hut pizzas were being carried up the stairs of the bus behind him so he was asked about it and Eddie being Eddie he's a lovely guy just tried to put on a brave face and say well you know if, if it works for us then we'll take it as he's both 23rd in the table and about to go for Dennis Wise and, and beating 5-1 at, at Luton so they got properly hammered for that and Carver did say afterwards look, this is actually the, the way it's done. Um, or at least this is how some clubs do it. And it's not that pizza's completely off the menu now. It's two things really. Firstly, you, you would not find elite squads carb loading by doing an order from, from Pizza Hut. And secondly, most of them have chefs who travel away on the team coach, um, or in Leeds' case, nutritionists, they've got two. They've got a guy called um, Nessin Costello and um, Andy Jenkinson who work at um, Leeds Beckett University and have been with them for the best part of 18 months to, to two years now. So they you, your chefs prepare all the food. So even if they're making pizza, they know what's in it they know how to make it nutritionally good so nobody is getting stuck into double pepperoni with stuffed crust anymore or certainly not not at this level either but of course with Bielsa the, the diet's to an extreme level because he wants everybody to be so lean and so fit and, and so light so Leeds actually operate very sort of carb light diet there's a lot of fish there's a lot of veg loads of fruit at Thorparch fresh fruit you know for for good sugars and I think to an extent a lot of the players are starving a fair amount of the time and have been from the start but I'm really impressed by the way that they've all kind of gone with it I think other coaches would have found it really difficult to have imposed that regime and kept it going It's funny because I was in the car with my dad the other day and he was recounting a story of um, working for British Gas in Bradford and he'd see Frank Worthington in the pub on a, on a Friday afternoon you know the same pubs that he was going into when he finished on the gas and then Worthington had turned out for Huddersfield on the Saturday safe to say times have changed Yes, um, I remember being told of sightings of Andy Gorham in Glencoe's Golf Club in Pennycook before he played for Rangers on Saturday afternoons. Odd pint um, here or there. Um, you'd, the thing is, they, they all get they all get tested at Thorpe Arch all the time. So obviously, 
for weight that goes without saying and, and, and body fat but they do the skin fold test as well and apparently I'm told and I don't know because it would be much point in doing one on me but it shows up really clearly if you've been cutting corners and been eating things that, that you haven't uh, so somebody was telling me about one player who I, who I won't name who came back from a holiday in Dubai and was panicking because they'd put on about half a kilo which would be odd quarter of a kilo which would be what a couple of pounds something like that and we're convinced that it would show up because it, it is it is that obvious if you've been eating donuts or or whatever else. But what was really weird, and I only found this out last week, was the story of the time when Bielsa, who had obviously pushed them a bit too hard and had obviously realised that he, he might, be, even he might be taking the mickey and might be due to offer them a, a bit of a carrot rather than the stick, suddenly turned up at a team meeting with a massive box of Krispy Kreme donuts and said to the players, get stuck in. And I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of the players look forward to each summer so that they can get to the chippy and they can get to the curry house and everything else. Um, but yeah, that must have been a good morning. Funny mentioning that Luton game. I don't know if Sean Gregan played in that, but yesterday I was listening to Clark Carlisle on Under the Cosh and he said Sean Gregan used to have four cans and a bottle of red the night before a game. That was his standard, <laughs> his standard pre-match prep. It used to help him sleep, which I'm, not, which I'm not surprised because it certainly helped me sleep. Routine is very important. <laughs> But yeah, I could get the I feeling th- Gregan would have fallen somewhere short of the body fat percentages I required. Think, I think it was Hayden Fox and Paul Butler, but I can't remember. I, I remember Sean Derry and Jonathan Douglas running about the pitch, screaming blue murder at each other. And I mean, that dressing room was so divided and so, well, so rotten, really, that it's, not, it's no surprise at all that they went down. But that was kind of a day that totally typified it. There was nobody, nobody in charge at any level. And it was an absolute shambles, topped off a pizza. Now, as we know, Phil has made some bold predictions in the past, often wrong. Uh, Usually wrong. Yes, Yes. every week we are going to make you stick your neck on the block and tell us who or what you think is going to be making the headlines and is going to make Twitter blow up what's going to be in your mentions. So we're going to ask you to choose Phil's one to watch, a player or a key battle for the upcoming game against Borough. Who is your one to watch, Phil? Hey, It's got to be Woody. It's got to be Woodgate. The caveat for this is that the Middlesbrough are playing Barnsley tonight, so it might well be that a very good win kind of shows him him up a little bit. On the flip side, I honestly wonder whether even Gibson would have the skin to put up with a defeat to Barnsley and a paste in from Leeds this weekend. I mean, this this reminds me a lot, this scenario of when Strachan was manager of Middlesbrough in 2010 and Leeds went went there and, and won, I think, some and... and um, Becchio scored and you had the home end who had had enough of striking and were chanting for him to go against the away end who could sense the mood so were chanting as positively for striking as they could and I think by full time everybody including Strachan just thought right enough's enough here and uh, and they went their separate ways and it's got the potential to go like that at, on Saturday because I mean Woodgate without having really asked people recently I would assume is still held in pretty high regard at, at Leeds as a player, far less so I would imagine for what went on in the season with him and, and Boyer wound up in court. But he was a top-class centre-back. I mean, Eddie Gray always says he's a, he's about as good a centre-back as he ever worked with. He said he, he could actually genuinely see why it was that would get wound up at Real Madrid because he did have that that kind of level of, of talent. So I would think, you'll tell me, but I would think you'll be pretty well received. And I think there'll be some fun and games if Borough do find themselves trailing badly. Well, it remains to be seen if he's as good a manager as uh, as he was a player. And yeah, I do think he will be well received, but um, we will check back in next week and see if your predictions were right, Phil. Uh, this podcast, as we mentioned at the top of the show, one of 11 being launched by The Athletic this week. So if you want to listen to more football stuff beyond Leeds, give them a try. Uh, the Ornstein and Chapman show, Mark Chapman and David Ornstein delve deep into some of football's biggest stories, discussing that possible return to the Premier League for England winger Jaden Sancho. And fingers crossed that we're going to be discussing more 
of our Premier League players in the future. Next year. Next year. It's on. It's absolutely on, Phil. You've said it earlier on in the podcast. Not, not only me as well. Yeah, no, we're all on the hook. To hear that and many more shows, go to theathletic.com right now and you can subscribe with 40% discount by using the code UKPOD. Thank you for listening to this one. We'll speak to you next week. The Square Ball Podcast. <laughs>